This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by The Jesus Music, the new documentary from Lionsgate and the creators of I Can Only Imagine, featuring interviews with many artists from contemporary Christian music. The Jesus Music, only in theaters beginning October 1st. More information is available at thejesusmusic.movie. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Thank you so much for joining us again. I want to begin by apologizing for my voice. I am recovering from laryngitis, but oddly enough, that puts me in a great position to address the subject we're going to be talking about today, healing. Now, we all want to be healed when we're sick. It doesn't always happen. And unfortunately, there are people who say that if you're not healed, it's because you're not exhibiting enough faith in God. But what does the Bible really say about healing and about our healer? We're going to talk about it today with Pastor Cosby. He is the president and founder of For the Gospel. His book is called More Than a Healer. And so great to have you with us, Costi. I apologize in advance for my voice, but I'm glad you're here. That's okay. Great to be with you, Janet. Well, thank you. You know, a lot of people know your story. We've talked before on the show about your time spent with your famous uncle, Benny Hinn, the prosperity preacher, and how you left that world and embraced a biblical theology. But it's very poignant to read your story of how this issue of healing has hit home for your family. Can you bring people up to speed a little bit on the situation with your little boy? Yeah, we came out of the prosperity gospel some years ago, and we're enjoying life and ministry and Things were just moving along, and about three years ago now, our son is three now, at three months old, um, he was diagnosed, our son Timothy, with with a rare form of cancer. We have four kids. We have Titus, Grace, Timothy, and Ruth, and Timothy was diagnosed with cancer. And um, the night that I found out, I will never forget it, my wife came in the kitchen, and I sat down at the table, and she sat right there on my lap, and I held her. She kind of collapsed into my arms and began weeping. And the only thing that came to mind at the moment was uh, the first line I said to her was, we weren't going to get out of this life unscathed, were we? And she just shook her head. And then the second thing I said was, you know, now we're going to live what I've been preaching. And she nodded her head, and we cried together, prayed together, and we've moved forward in the Lord since. And the biggest reality that came to bear upon us was it wasn't going to be some departure from the prosperity gospel with this, you know, rah, rah, go, Costi, go. We're going to take them all on type of thing and then get book deals and just go on and ride off into the sunset. It, It's real. You know, we're real people with real stories, real pain, real experiences, just like everyone else. And it was a great moment in many ways, even though it was a horrific moment. The Lord used it to show us his strength and our weakness, also to put us in a position of humility and dependency every day, because it's a rare form of cancer. And right now he's doing well, but overall, um, they said it's not something that necessarily goes away. And that is something that keeps us humble and surrendered and trusting the Lord no matter what. So we just decided God is good. Uh, based on what the Bible teaches, we decided we're going to obey that and go with that model, not the other stuff. God's good on the mountaintop, and he's good in the valley. He's good in the pain, and he's good in the times of great pleasure and joy. And that's become a reality for us. 
Oh, my goodness. Well, I'm so, so sorry to hear about little Timothy, and we will be praying for him, that God will will heal him, because that's obviously what everybody would want. But, you know, this is interesting. You describe in your book how your family reacted, some of your family members, I guess, kind of in keeping with their own theology. But describe that a little bit, because I think when, when it really hits home, whether or not you're grounded in Scripture, it's at a moment like that. Talk about that a little bit, what their position was on healing with your little boy when you were trying to really stick with what Scripture says? We explained it to some family members one evening, and one of them in particular uh, basically said, you're sure that this is not because you touched the Lord's anointed. And, you know, those moments make your blood boil a little bit as a dad, but at the same time, uh, I think if it was a few years prior, our theological growth was still sort of shaky and we were maturing in the faith and didn't know a lot, um, or we were in the middle of learning. But at that that point, uh, the sovereignty of God, the goodness of God, that he does heal, but that he does so according to his will, uh, that he is good even when things are not, that like Job, he gives, he takes away. All of that was a, a, a sure reality for us. It was clear. And I remember getting the chance to share about the sovereignty of God and that there are no accidents with God and that everything that he allows has to first pass through his hands and that he's in control and that we're going to trust him and that he is going to be glorified no matter what. So we leaned in there. Other family members just sort of raised their eyebrows like, okay, that's, you know, that's the coping mechanism and that's what you're going with. And we just kept pointing back to scripture because in the end, I see a pattern throughout the Bible that gives me great comfort. I don't have to wonder, and I'll give you one more response here, Janet, on this. One of the family members was, was kind of pressing in. You know, when you touch the Lord's anointed, God, God in our case, didn't, didn't judge me or my wife. See, that would have been just normal, but he even went further and judged our son. So now we have to watch our son suffer. And to that, here's what made me sleep just fine at night. When we come against the prosperity gospel or false teachers, heresy and error, I am doing exactly what Paul says to do in Romans 16, verses 17 and 18. We're marking people who are causing divisions and who are doing damage by teaching false things. And we're doing what Ephesians 5.11 says. We're exposing deeds of darkness. So I never have to ever look at my son's situation and think, man, that's got to be because I came against my uncle. I look at the Bible and said, we're obeying that. And then here's what's happening in our home. Okay, we can trust the Lord. There are no accidents with God. His will be done. So we're letting the Bible do the talking uh, day and night on this one. Well, that's amazing. And it's necessary to do that because especially at this point in time, it would be understandable, I would think, for a lot of people, if you did become so desperate that you reverted back to that theology, it wouldn't have been biblical to do it clearly, but it would have been understandable from an emotional standpoint. How much of this bad theology of the prosperity gospel do you think really is tied to people's desperation and the emotion of the moment, while understandable, is what's driving the theology? I think that's a great question. And having now gone through this and been in it, um, while on one hand, I can't even imagine ever reverting back because of how much older, wiser people have poured into us because of mentors and mature people in the faith and discipleship. Those things help establish a really solid foundation for new believers like we used to be. But I could say this, had I not had those things and nobody had discipled me 
And I didn't have all that support from my pastor and our mentors in the local church. I could easily see and appreciate, though I don't agree with this at all, and I would never recommend it, and I don't even say it's fine or right, I'm excusing it, but I could see how so many people out of desperation want to believe, and let's go even further, they have to believe that God is going to do this or that, that he's going to bless them, going to heal them, that it's all going to be okay, because how else will they cope? They haven't studied God's word on these issues. They've never been taught these issues. They're like somebody who can't discern their left hand from their right. So as on one hand, yeah, I get even more fired up about some of the abuses because I think, no, we need to be clearer and clearer and clearer. But on the other side, empathy has grown in our hearts and in our home because I could easily understand how if you're on your last leg, all you want to do is hold your child one more day, one more moment, and you'll believe anything in order to experience that. Yes, right. And and certainly there are many people listening who can relate to that, who have been through a situation similar to yours. Would you say that people fundamentally are misunderstanding the character of God when they are saying things like, if you really had enough faith, God would heal you or God would heal your son? What are they misunderstanding? Well, they're misunderstanding the nature of God. When we look at God's character, we see things like love and goodness and holiness and all of those other attributes. We could go through a whole list. You could do episodes on the character of God. But let's just say that one of them is, let's talk about love for a moment, that he is love. Well, that means that even when he pours out his wrath and judgment, which doesn't seem very loving, that because God is perfect and because he's holy and because all of his attributes are perfectly expressed, never contradicting every, any other of his attributes, well, then even when he's pouring out his wrath and he hates sin and he has a hatred towards wickedness, God is still expressing perfect love. Well, it's the same thing with his goodness. Yeah. Even when your situation is not good, even when the results aren't good, Romans eight twenty eight that idea that God causes all things to work together for good means that it's his definition of good and he is the one who determines that. So true. Costy Hinn, More Than a Healer is his book. We'll come back on Janet Meffer today. From Sherwood Pictures, Affirm Films, Provident Films, and the Kendrick Brothers comes Courageous Legacy. Celebrating 10 years of impact on families and fathers, remastered in 4K, and including a new ending and bonus scenes. So where are you, men of courage? I believe every father should step up and answer the call and say, I will, I will. Courageous Legacy, rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Now playing. More information is available at CourageousTheMovie.com. Hi, this is Kirk Cameron, and I am honored to be partnering with the Ministry of Preborn to help moms choose life. Actor Kirk Cameron supports Preborn. My four oldest children were adopted. That is because of caring and compassionate people who help those young mothers choose life. My wife is an adopted child, and her birth mother chose life for her. If it weren't for those caring individuals that help those young moms value the sacredness of life, I wouldn't have my wife, I wouldn't have my four adopted children, and the two natural-born children that we have wouldn't exist either. My whole family is here because of people that are involved with ministries like preborn.
Help moms choose life with preborn. Your gift of $28 provides an abortion-minded mother a potentially life-saving ultrasound. $140 could save five babies. You can give now at 855-601-BABY. That's 855-601-2229 or visit preborn.com. From Lionsgate and the creators of I Can Only Imagine comes a new documentary, The Jesus Music. Jesus Music found its way in my hometown and it changed my life. I saw contemporary Christian music born right before my very eyes. I think music is the most powerful universal language in the world. Featuring interviews with many artists from contemporary Christian music, including Amy Grant, Michael W. Smith, Toby Mack, and Kirk Franklin. The Jesus Music, only in theaters beginning October 1st. More information is available at thejesusmusic.com movie. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now here's Janet. Thank you for joining us. Sorry for my voice. If you're just tuning in, just recovering a little bit from a bad bout of laryngitis, but I had to get to this interview today. Costi Hinn is with us more than a healer, not the Jesus you want, but the Jesus you need is his new book. And we were discussing how he is personally dealing along with his family with the cancer diagnosis of his little boy, Timothy. So please pray for Timothy. But it's fascinating to see how the Lord is working in the Hinn's life, given the fact that Costi grew up in this whole prosperity gospel um, situation and ministry with his uncle Benny Hinn. You know, Costi, getting back to some fundamental questions, you talked about God's character and how that's so much a part of what we don't understand or what we should understand about God's character kind of drives whether or not we believe healing is guaranteed versus healing is by God's grace and by God's wise decision and sovereignty. What about this issue of why people get sick in the first place. This seems to be a very fundamental place that we need to begin. Yeah, I think it's a vital question that we need to make sure we ask and answer based on Scripture. A lot of people have a lot of opinions. A lot of people say, well, I think this and I think that. But I I did this study a while ago, years ago, because I wanted to know. And I give you some basic kind of rapid-fire truths here. Sickness and death entered the world through original sin. That's one reason why people get sick. Sin entered the world. We are on a broken planet. It's not as it will be. Jesus one day will return. He will establish his kingdom, new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem, all of it. And it'll be a place of no sickness, no tears, and no pain. But until then, we're on a broken ball of dirt. Another thing, uh, sickness and death can strike us because of our sin. Now, people might think, whoa, what are you saying? Where are you getting that from? Well, Paul says, to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 11, that people are weak, sick, or even dead because they take communion unworthily. So there could be instances, though we can't make a blanket statement that, you know, all sickness is the result of your particular sin and God is striking you, um, that there are instances in which people take communion unworthily or they dishonor the Lord. Um, We also could say on a practical level that we, just by principle of reaping what we sow, if we do a lot of drugs, if we drink alcohol excessively, if we act foolishly, if we don't take care of our bodies, uh, the body breaks down. And so sometimes our own decisions could lead to those things. But again, God's not striking us with sin at every turn. Another one, uh, you could say that sickness and death are not always the result of our sin, and God uses these things to bring himself glory, like the blind man in John 9, who Jesus says to his disciples, hey, he's not blind because of his parents' sin. He is blind because I'm going to be glorified by healing him. And certainly that leads us to know that sickness and death can be used by God for his glory and for the good 
of others. That's Romans 8, 28. God will use things for his glory. We see that even now in the life of women like Johnny Erickson Tata, who's a quadriplegic and is so faithful. Women like Nancy Guthrie, who have the Lord's given the ministries to women and her and her husband to parents who have lost children because she has lost children and on and on and on throughout the halls of history, uh, mainly the Apostle Paul and the early disciples, giving God the glory no matter what. Uh, we could see we get sick for a lot of reasons. We need to be very careful presuming that which is not in Scripture. Yep, and Johnny's a perfect example of that. What a ministry she has had over all these 50-plus years that she's been in that wheelchair, and it would have been a totally different situation had the Lord not sovereignly overseen the fact that she would have that diving accident. How many people have benefited from the fact that she has been a faithful Christian and trusted God in her disability? It's it's such a, a testimony to God's grace. Her, her her sickness and her disability is actually bringing glory worldwide. Absolutely. That is the part that we have to be humbled by is God at any time. He is, he is sovereign and he determines all things. He can allow things and he can use things for his glory. And here's the beautiful perspective that he has. We got to be humbled by this. God has an eternal perspective. In fact, he is eternal. Our life on earth is a grain of sand. Okay. Yep. Eternity is infinite. If God allows my existence, yours, Johnny's, whomever's, to be a challenging existence for his glory while on earth, do we realize how much that tails in comparison to eternity? Amen. That eternity is so far beyond. If you try to think about it, our, your, your, your brain wires will short circuit because you just can't even go there mentally. God will one day reveal all these things to us. For now, we do our best by grace together as a body of believers to encourage one another with eternal perspective. He is working. He's doing something. Let's trust him and give him glory. Well, and you think of what the Lord responded to Job when Job was going through all of his trials. Where were you, Job, when I created the world, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There are mysteries to God's plan that we don't yet know and, and won't know and shouldn't expect to know. And that's an important reminder for Christians. It is. I think you got to go to God's will. And one thing that I would encourage Christians to study is the will of God. We get into some of this in the book that, you know, we have God's decreed will, and that's his revealed will where we see it. He has laid it out in Scripture. He has decreed, commanded. He said, do this. Here's what I'm going to do. Here it is. Walk this way. And then you have God's secret will or his hidden will, which many theologians all agree. That's just those things that we don't know. The Bible says that the secret things belong to our God. I don't know what he's doing. I don't know why. Why did he allow Timothy to get cancer? And why this and why that? It makes for a wild storyline. You know, even in the beginning, I thought, Lord, I'll take any other suffering. This was not me, you know, doubting the Lord and his sovereignty, but I just thought this in the beginning, Lord, I'll I'll take any other type of suffering, but this one's going to be interesting because you know what they're going to say. They're going to say that I touched the Lord's anointed. Wouldn't you want to maybe have me suffer a different way, maybe get beaten up for being a preacher or some other thing, put me in prison, but now they're going to think they're right. And now people are going to think they're right and they're not right. So are you sure this is the one you want to go for? Timothy, cancer, 
And that's going to look like we touch. So, okay, whatever you want, Lord. And it's a humbling thing to think I would write the storyline a certain way, but God is the one who determines he's the author. Wow. And I mean, that really demonstrates your faith and your trust in our Savior, because we have to trust him regardless of what we thought would have been a better plan. You know, something else I wanted to touch on, Costi, is this idea that you have to have X amount of faith in order for God to heal you. And if you don't get healed, it's because you didn't have enough faith. How do you refute that? Because as you point out, God doesn't heal based solely on our faith. It's not incumbent upon us to have gigantic faith. And if we fall short, you know, we're just out of luck. Poor God was going to heal us and we just didn't pass the test. I mean, can you refute that biblically? Yeah, you can go to a whole bunch of different examples, but I'll highlight in the gospel narrative, you've got a man at the healing, or a man at the pool of Bethesda, the healing at the pool of Bethesda is the story. Um, the man does not even know who Jesus was. You go read John chapter 5, 1 through 17. My favorite story, a story linked to my actual conversion, what opened my eyes. And simple reality, that man didn't even perceive who Jesus was. He did not have enough faith. He did nothing to deserve to be healed. In fact, he fit the bill of somebody we would say is not going to get their healing because you know what he did? You remember he complained. Jesus says, do you wish to get well? And the man whines. Well, I, I, I wish, but every time I go to get in the pool, somebody beats me there. We would have called that in the old days, Janet, a negative spirit. And your negative spirit of grumbling and complaining like the children of Israel is going to lead to your wandering. No wonder you're not healed. He would have not fit the bill for somebody who gets healed. Jesus heals them anyway. What an example of Jesus healing according to his will not ours. But then conversely, you remember the woman with the issue of blood, she's crawling through the street, grabs the hem of his garment. He feels power, leave him. He turns, he heals her. But remember what he says to her daughter, your faith has made you well. And then he says, now go in peace. He does two things there. He uses a familial term, daughter. He says, go in peace. Why in the world would Jesus tell somebody to go in peace as though they have peace from God, unless they were at peace with God. This woman was saved. She was converted. She knew he was the son of God, like so many others. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Who do you say that I am? You are Christ, son of the living God. His disciples said Jesus was moved by faith. He was moved with compassion at other times. So the lesson there is we can't turn his healing ministry into a formula. You can't say, hey, if you do this or if you do that, Jesus showed us you could have faith and not get healed. You could be like Paul and ask for a thorn in the flesh to be removed, and God says, nope, I'm going to be shown powerful through that weakness. You could be like Paul and preach in bodily illness to Galatia, or you could be like the man at the pool of Bethesda and have no faith at all in Jesus heal you, or you could crawl through the street to make it to him, and he would heal. It is not a formula. We trust him in faith and let him determine according to his will. Very well said. I mean, and this goes back to your point that in our need for healing, we tend to overlook the healer. It's about make me well, Jesus, make me well. It's not about Jesus as our healer, our savior, our, you know, our provider, our Lord. It, it, you know, that's that's the problem is that the one who will give me something takes on this persona of just give me what I want, give me what I want. That's not what it means to be a Christian. We are to trust him no matter what he gives to us. Amen. I, I think we would call somebody who got married for a transaction crazy. You would never say your true friend is a person who says, yeah, I'm your friend because you do all the things I want. But for some reason, this idea that God is there and it's a transaction slips through the cracks. We need to really realize 
that if you have nothing from God, he doesn't do a whole bunch of things for you materially. He doesn't heal you, but he has saved you. You have everything you'll ever need. That a relationship with him is the thing we ought to want and crave the most. We don't naturally because of the flesh. And so I think I wanted to write a book like this to, yes, say Jesus is a healer, but point them to hope in the midst of hopelessness and his comfort, his peace, but also that he's justice, that he's sovereign, that he's good, and he's going to come back one day. Do you have a relationship with him? Do you know the Savior? And do you have what you need the most in him? I love it. Costi Hinn, the name of the book, More Than a Healer, a wonderful book. And we will continue to pray for your little boy, Timothy Costi. Thank you so much. Thank you, Janet. We'll talk to you soon. All right. God bless you. This hour, Janet Meffer today is brought to you in part by Courageous Legacy. The new film from Sherwood Pictures, Affirm Films, Provident Films, and the Kendrick Brothers, remastered in 4K and including a new ending, Courageous Legacy rated PG-13, now playing. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by The Jesus Music, the new documentary from Lionsgate and the creators of I Can Only Imagine, featuring interviews with many artists from contemporary Christian music. The Jesus Music, only in theaters beginning October 1st. More information is available at thejesusmusic.movie. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. We have all heard the terrible statistics about kids walking away from the church after they were raised in church. And that's why we have to do everything we can to make sure that our children aren't just going along with us to church each week, but have really put their faith in Jesus Christ for salvation and then are fully grounded in the Bible and in the Christian faith. Now, of course, there is no perfect magic formula. We plant the seeds and water and God gives the growth, as scripture says. But what is important is for churches and parents to work together for the cause of Christ in the lives of the upcoming generations. So we're going to talk about it today with Phil Bell. He has over 20 years of experience in ministry and is out with a book called The Family Ministry Playbook for Partnering with Parents. Great to have you here, Phil. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much, Jenny. It is great to be here with you. Oh, our honor. Why is it so important, do you think, for churches to partner with parents when it comes to youth ministry? Well, I think, you know, I'm, I'm someone who uh, spent many years in the trenches of youth ministry. And, you know, I'd like to think that, um, you know, I, I learned as I went on my way as a youth worker. But I, I think that one of the things I've seen in the past 20 years of ministry is the fact that, um, you know, kids are, are walking away from their faith. And, and a key component that I've observed that is also supported biblically is the fact that when, when parents and the church work together, to, to reach the next generation for Christ. Um, it's more powerful than the church or the parents working separately. And so I believe that, you know, when, when Moses stood in front of his people in Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, and says, Hear, O Israel, it was a message for the whole faith community to get back on track. And I really believe that in our age today, it's time for the church and the family to come together, powerfully so, with God working in and through them to reach the next generation for Christ. And I believe if you can reach the family, you can change the world. Well, that's very important. I agree with you. Do you think that the lack of parental involvement in part played a role in kids leaving the church long term? Do you see a connection there? 
Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I want to say this straight out the gate. I'm a parent myself. I've got three kids and, and I'm probably doing some really great things. But there's some things I can probably do that are going to make a, a huge difference in my kids' faith journey. And I really believe, and, and for any parents listening today, that no, no matter what, what anybody says to you, no matter what you think of yourself, parents are still and have always been the greatest influence in their kids' faith journey. I think the combination of factors has contributed to um, some challenges. I think our culture is, is more challenging in these recent times than it's ever been. So kids are faced with so much coming their way. I think also parents are busier than ever. They are living frenetic lives, uh, working as hard as they can, but packing as much as they can in their schedules. And quite honestly, often not leaving enough time for themselves to grow personally, mm. but also enough time for faith conversations. And then I think the third thing is, is um, as, a, as a youth worker, uh, you know, in the trenches, I at times made it too easy for parents just to drop their kids off to me and allow me to be the answer to their fears and problems. Yeah. And so... I think that, you know, the church has, 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 has almost encouraged sometimes a drop-off culture, but it's been made easier by us, by us busy parents as well. So I think those three combinating factors um, have been a challenge for us in the last 20, 30, maybe even 40 years. Well, uh, something else that sometimes will arise when people are discussing youth ministry is how youth ministry has changed in some circumstances. Not every church, obviously, but there have mm-hmm. been criticisms, le- criticisms leveled. Youth ministry is too fun. It might be too entertaining. They're not really teaching kids the depths of God's word. Where do you come down on that mm-hmm. issue, as, having done it? Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. And in my book, I actually address it because uh, I think in one moment I do say I'm not about to drop the hammer on youth ministry because I see so much great value um, in, in healthy youth ministries. Yeah. But I would say this. Um, I, I, I don't even want to get too much into the discussion of is it too fun or is it not deep enough? I think what is what goes awry in youth ministries is too many youth pastors make themselves the hero in the kids' faith journey. Mm. And... If we were to change our perspectives, and I say we, because that's me as well, that's us in ministry. If we were to change our perspectives and see the parents as the hero to the kids, it would automatically change how we program, what we say to our kids, what we teach them. And then more importantly, what we communicate to the parents and how we start coming along the par- alongside the parents to set them up to be the hero investing in their kids' faith journey. And I think that's a bigger conversation. Uh, we can talk about is it too fun or too deep, but, but is, is the, are the parents being set up to be the heroes on their kids' faith journey? And that's more, the more important question I like to ask. Well, that, that is really, really important. How in the world do you look at youth ministry differently given this perspective that parents need to be more involved and the youth minister isn't supposed to be the hero? What do you do in order to move in that direction if you're running a youth ministry currently and you're hearing this and you're saying, you're right, I, I do want to bring the parents in, but how do you do that effectively? I, I think, you know, um, I love to use the expression, um, you know, to apply this to this kind of conversation. It really isn't rocket science um, <laughs> when it comes to to the basics of, of good and healthy ministry. And, and the problem is a lot of time we're looking for more complicated um, answers to the questions that we face. I really think it starts with this. And a friend of mine, Chris Sasser, who's an incredible family ministry um, um, uh, practitioner, he's still in the trenches of family ministry right now, doing some formidable things to really reach parents. Where he starts with, and I mentioned this in the book, 
he starts with a couple of important questions, one of which is um, he gets alongside parents and he says to them, look, we, we are here to partner with parents to help you to be the hero in your kid's faith journey. When we say we're here to partner with the family, what do you need that to mean to you? What, what are you needing right now in this moment? What are some of the things that you are facing that we can help you with? And so I would say to all, all youth pastors that are listening to this or anyone that's in ministry of reaching students and children, when you ask questions like that to parents, they're going to give you a lot of different answers, but it's a starting point of listening to them, listening to their needs, their practical felt needs, or in some ways, as I sometimes refer, it's the alarm bells that are ringing in their lives. If we can listen to those things first, then, then the next step is to try to find ways in which we can come alongside parents and support them in those needs. Once we start to support them in those needs, it's then we can have more conversations about what does it mean to be intentional about investing in your child's faith? What does it mean to have teachable moments? What does it mean to have milestone moments in your kid's faith journey? But we need to start where the parents are at, and that starts with listening, which is super simple, but not, not enough of us are doing it. We're too busy building great programs. We need to slow down, listen to parents, and ask them those key questions and then find ways to resource parents with the answers to those questions. Well, that's great. What do you tend to hear from parents when, you know, that kind of thing is done where you ask the parents, what can we do to, you know, what are some of the issues that come up for you? What do you need? We're here to partner with you. What are some of the things that parents tend to say? Well, that's a great question. Now, obviously, every family is different and you've got foundational issues. Sometimes it's single parents have have got, you know, a different set of issues from um, from another type, family type. But I would say that there are some commonalities and, and every season of parenting, of course, has different issues that are coming up. But, you know, you talk about youth ministry. A lot of the same issues that you see these days are things like, you know, uh, my kids are dealing with a lot of anxiety that, you know, that the, the repercussions of COVID and, and there's a lot of depression and there's worry and I'm hearing about teen suicide. Uh, you know, that's one big thing that parents are staying up at night and worrying about. Uh, the other thing is is the continuation of technology and how to help their kids navigate through that. And then the other ones are, you know, a lot of the issues that, you know, should be black and white, a lot of the, the truth that we should know and that we should be applying to our lives. In our world today, it seems like nothing is black and white. Everything has uh, an opinion or has uh, some interpretation that's okay depending on who you are. And so a lot of these kids are coming home and their parents are struggling with, well, I know that's not true. I know that's not what God says about it. But how do I talk to my kids about these these cultural issues of the day? And so I think those are the three things I'm hearing: anxiety, depression, um, suicide. Those that's one category. Technology and how to navigate through that is another category. And the third thing is is the cultural issues of the day and trying to figure out. What does God really say about those things? Oh, so important. It shows just how many challenges face youth ministers and parents, too. We're going to come back with Phil Bell. His book is called The Family Ministry Playbook for Partnering with Parents. Stay with us on Janet Meffer today. Ask yourself, what do you pay for health care? Are you single? Do you pay more than $199 a month? Are you a couple? Do you pay more than $299 a month? Do you have a family? Do you pay more than $399 a month? 
Yes, you can serve the entire family with health care for only $399 a month with Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance. So your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals. Sign up at any time of the year. Pick your own doctor and hospital. Find out more at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. Or call now, 855-565-2561. That's 855-565-2561 or libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. This is Janet Mafford for Bible League International. Jaime is an itinerant pastor in Ecuador. In Latin America, there, there are violence. Pastors and Christian workers uh, face with attackers, thieves, gangs. So that's the, that's the problem. Jaime will travel days by foot, boat, and mule. He's been beaten by warlocks, robbed, and suffered broken bones after falling in the Andes Mountains. What awaits him at the end of each trip? A thriving congregation of hundreds of believers in an area where Christianity is fiercely opposed. When I share Jaime's story, I recall Isaiah 6, 8. Whom shall I send? Who will go? I believe this man is enduring more than some pastors ever will. And like others in the world where Bibles are desperately needed, Jaime is humbly asking us to send God's word. For only $5, you can send a Bible to Latin America and around the world, and a special match will double your gift. Call 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD, or there's a Bible League banner at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today, and now, here's Janet. We are back with Phil Bell. He has over 20 years in ministry as a pastor, national speaker, columnist, and blogger. He stays very busy, and he's out with a new book, The Family Ministry Playbook for Partnering with Parents. Phil, we were talking about this all-important issue of making sure that the church is not operating in a vacuum, as it were, with kids and bringing them to Christ and helping them get discipled and grow in their faith. Uh, We see all these terrible statistics about kids leaving the church once they are out from under mom and dad's thumb, as it were, but you're really advocating for something important and I think biblical, which is the parents and the ministers have to work together. Now, when you are forming this team, as it were, you talk about the importance of having a unified team between Mm -hmm. the minister and also the parents and also having a synchronized team approach. You know, you mentioned before the, the importance of asking parents, what do you need? But how do you, practically speaking, get the parents to be involved in the ministry? Let's say, for example, a youth group. Do you do things like bring the parents in to attend each youth group? Do you have meetings with them? What sorts of things go on? That's a great question. So, you know, I, I think it does depend on, on, on each church and each culture. Some some youth ministries, it's easy to bring parents straight in, and then sometimes there's not always a culture of that. But I would say that um, students in their age range, they're looking for autonomy and independence. So obviously they want to be able to do the things by themselves with their friends, um, hear about messages that are relevant to them, maybe not feel like they're embarrassed by their parents. But there are uh, some key opportunities, you know, especially uh, at the beginning of the year when you've got a kickoff, um, sometimes, you know, around Christmas time, um, a lot of the time towards the end of end of the year there's there's certain times when you can bring parents in to be a part of something you're doing so i would say to every church you know find strategically you know at least three or four times when you can bring parents in and a lot of time you know in the past what we've done in the in the situations i've been in is what you do again is you find a felt need something that parents are really looking for answers in and 
you do it on the same night as youth group or the same time as youth group is happening, you have the kids come in, you have the students come in and do their program. You bring the parents in, you teach them and train them in something that they really want to know an answer to. You tell them a little bit more about your vision and the plan for the ministry so you can kind of pique their interest as to where you're going and what you're doing. But then at some point strategically bring the parents and the kids together, whether it's for worship together, whether it's to do some fun, silly game that's not going to be too embarrassing for kids. <laughs> Find ways to do, do things like that, but be very strategic about it. I also say is, you know, some of the best volunteers I've ever had have been parents. I always say to the parents first, if you're going to volunteer in the ministry, make sure you ask your student how they feel about being you being in the ministry. And if you are going to come into ministry, we'll put you somewhere where your your student feels like they've got some breathing space. But I would say to a young youth pastor out there or a youth director out there, um, even though parents might feel scary, if you can bring them into your ministry to be your eyes and your ears and the ones who are helping you figure out how to do things well and effectively partner with parents, if you can get them on board with it, you've got some of the best advocates but you're going to come up with some of the best ideas of how you reach parents, even if you're young and maybe not even a parent yourself. So trying to find ways to bring them into your ministry to work with the students because your your parent volunteers are going to be most consistent. They're going to be your, your biggest cheerleaders when you need them to be as well. Well, Phil, I, thinking about things like curriculum or Bible study uh, comes to mind because oftentimes if you drop your child off at youth group for a Bible study, they might not mm. even know, the parents might not even know which book of the Bible you're studying or if you're studying a book mm. or if you're going through some kind of curriculum, they may not know what it is. To what mm. extent do you use parents or talk to parents about what ought to be taught in a Bible study, Sunday mm. school, you know, apart from some of the more social events, the actual Bible teaching, how much do you get parents involved in that aspect of ministry? If you've got a ministry that truly is looking to partner with parents, you have many, many times throughout the year where you're bringing parents into your program, kind of like I just described. Right. And anytime you bring parents in, it's not just you talking to them and telling them what they need to know. You, you give them an opportunity to talk to you about what's going on in their family so that you can really understand some of the challenges and the issues that families are facing. So I would say that first and foremost. I think second of all is, is if, if you surround yourself with a team of, of parents who are on your team, you're going to find there's going to be five or six parents who've got their ears to the ground who know the issues that are going out there. Maybe some been there, seen it, done it, got the T-shirt type parents. <laughs> And those are the parents that you go to and say, hey, what are some of the challenges families are facing so that as we create curriculum, it's not just going to be with the student in mind, but it's going to be with the whole family in mind. Hmm. So I think that's really key. And then I talk about this in the book, uh, communicating with parents in multiple modes in ways that's not going to exhaust your resources, but finding ways to communicate what you are teaching to parents is so, so key. And if you've got a hot button topic or a difficult topic that's coming up, Make sure that you get curriculum sent out in email so they can see what you're teaching um, ahead of time, way ahead of time. But I would say as standard practice, you be, should be sending things out regularly so that any night of the week, a parent could sit down with their kid and have a conversation with what you've been teaching in your ministry. Getting that in the hands of parents is so, so important. That is a good idea. What about parents who aren't interested in partnering? You probably run into those parents, maybe they're too busy or maybe they're not even Christians. They say, I'm sending my kid to your church and I'm not really interested in Mm -hmm. God, but he seems to like it. He has friends Mm -hmm. there. What do you do with those parents? How do you connect with them? 
So, you know, candidly, I was one of those kids. Um, I, I went to a youth group at 14. Um, our family never went to church at all. And for four years, I was a part of this extraordinary youth ministry. Mm. And really, I, you know, I learned a lot. <laughs> Surprisingly, you know, when you're a kid, you don't really watch what your parents are doing. But now when I look back, I learned so much from what that youth ministry did with my parents. And again, it really was finding ways in which to partner with parents in the felt needs and talking about the things that are going on in their world. Um, a lot of the time in youth ministries, if you can find a, a really easy first step for a parent to come in and set the parent up as a hero in front of their kid, that's, that's often the way. So in, in some ministries, and you see a lot of ministries doing this, things like, um, they, they've, you know, we have these, um, um, these colored powders that you, you know, these pinks and purples that you throw at each other. We, we call them, you know, sort of powder wars or something like that. A lot of the time, if you can set up a, a game, you know, parents versus the kids and stuff like that, where they're just being silly, they're having fun, that often is the first step just to bring a parent in and set them up for a fun game and fun success. So, again, start with the issues they're facing, talk about those issues, try to communicate in multiple modes to them and create easy first steps where they can come in and have fun with their kids. And when you've gotten there, tell them a little bit more about what you're doing. And really, that's what a lot of the youth ministry that I, I grew up in, you know, decades ago mm. that's what they did they just created these easy first steps that were no pressure that didn't feel too churchy quite honestly which you know is difficult because you do want to give them some substance yes but meeting parents with where they are is is, is the key and that's talking about their issues and having fun with them at first. Yeah, you're right. Something you touched on earlier is this typical thing where you have kids in youth ministry and they're horrified at the idea of mom or dad showing up because <laughs> this is their <laughs> group and they want to be around their friends. And the last thing you want is mom and dad coming in and ruining your good time. But at the same time, you're really moving in a paradigm shift here and you're trying to communicate mm -hmm. to the kids. This is about your whole family. Ultimately, this isn't yeah. just about you. How do you navigate that when the kids are saying, I'm not so sure I want them here, and you're saying, but they need to mm. be around? What, what do you do to, to bridge that gap? So I think, you know, as, as, a, as a young youth worker, I, I really didn't get this. Um, and, you know, as I look back now, sometimes um, I, I wince at some of the things I said and did. But I would say to any, any youth workers that listen to this today, it's so, so important that every opportunity you get to talk about parents um, in a positive way. Um, is so, so important, knowing that there are some kids who've just got some really difficult, difficult home lives. Um, so I, I think that it's really important to talk about the parents in, in the most positive way. And I think talking about the family holistically, and what I mean by that is, first of all, we, we start with the big family, which is the family of the church. Again, hear, O Israel. Yes. In our day and age, it's, for, it's a message for the whole faith community that we're reaching the next generation for Christ through the whole family. And so I think it's important to talk about that family. Then it's also important to talk about the, um, the family um, that, that they have, you know, their biological family. And for some kids, that might be their grandparents. That might be an uncle or aunt who's raising them. But try to point them to the family that they would consider is their actual family, is the one that can have influence and can help them. Uh, and then again, I would come back to the church and say, look, you know, for those kids that really don't have a good family influence, that's where it's uh, the job of adults um, around those kids to find ways to invest in them. And yes. that means it doesn't matter if you're a, a, a cool 25-year-old who kids maybe are going to look <laughs> up to, or you're a retiree who feels like you've got nothing you can offer to these kids. These kids need grandparent-type people. Yeah. So if there's anyone listening today who's a grandparent who's figuring out what can I do to make a, a lasting legacy 
in reaching the next generation, get involved in the youth ministry and find ways to love on these kids and be that grandparent type figure. That's a great idea. Phil Bell, the name of the book, The Family Ministry Playbook for Partnering with Parents. Thank you so much, Phil. It was great to have you here. It's so great to be here. Thank you so much. You are very welcome. And thanks for joining us. God bless. Thanks for joining us on Janet Meffer Today. And we'll see you next time. This hour of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you in part by the new documentary, The Jesus Music, from Lionsgate and the creators of I Can Only Imagine, only in theaters beginning October 1st. More information is available at thejesusmusic.movie.